Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, a woman's way to freedom, power, love, and magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Episode 14, The Other World is Always Close at Hand. My guest this week, who's also our guest storyteller, is Sean Parak O'Donohue. Sean is a poet, herbalist, writer, and teacher, and an initiated priest in two traditions. He lives in the mountains of western Maine. Sean's online learning community, The Other World Well Hedge School, offers weekly classes that weave together magic, herbalism, folklore, ecology, and history. His second book, Courting the Wild Queen, is available from Ratona Press. For more about Sean's teachings and writing, visit otherworldwell.com. Before Sean tells you a story of a great Irish hero, I want to tell you about a new offering of mine that I think you'll love. As a not-work listener, you know me as a storyteller. You probably have a good idea of why I call myself a word witch, too. In addition to crafting and sharing stories from the past, I also help folks uncover and heal their own stories. This work helps you to be more fully present in the now and to create a more beautiful, connected future. I call this work story healing, and the new offering of one-to-one sessions is called Healing for Heroines. It's a unique blend of energy medicine, intuitive guidance, and the language of archetypes and mythology to help you work through the tangles of life so you can weave a new story, so you can weave a heroine's knot. Healing for Heroines isn't just for women. It's for non-binary folks and for anyone who wants to connect to the deep feminine wisdom within. Being a heroine is not just about being a hero in a dress. It's about deepening relationships, building community, and finding strength by asking for support. Learn more about Healing for Heroines over on my website, marisagowdy.com. I am so excited to welcome Sean onto Network Storytelling today. And as is our way on the podcast, we let the story speak for itself. So, Sean, will you tell us a story? My people are of the Oanat tribe of Munster, the descendants of Owen Moore, who is the son of Anya. She who is in many ways herself the son, she of the late summer harvest. And the name echoes also the inner name of the salmon of wisdom who dwells in the pool in the other world well where all our rivers have their source. And the name of the yew tree that stands at the gate between this world and the world of the dead. They came first from Cork, but then in the turmoil that followed the fall of Brian Brew, they went north into Kerry and found their way to Loch Lean in Killarney. Killarney, the name of which means Church of the Blackthornberry. And they lived there on the shores of Loch Lane for centuries. My, and my great-grandfather grew up in that same place where they had come during that time. 
his name Asperda with Daniel O'Donoghue, as Gaelic as Donald O'Donoghue, which made him the namesake of one of the most revered ancestors in our lineage. Though Christianity had spread across most of Ireland by the time my people came to Loch Lane, there were still among our people some who held to the old ways. Donald O'Donoghue, that first of the name, O'Donoghue Moore, was one of those who kept the old ways and was drawn to the hidden knowledge of how the world was woven together. He was a great warrior, a generous chieftain, beloved and wise, known for his good counsel. And in the autumn of his life, still a fine, strong man, when he went out riding one day upon his horse and fell. And having fallen from the horse, death's approach felt clear to him. And he sought to evade death. And so he sought to become a student of the deepest mysteries of the forbidden knowledge. Some say that our surname means grandsons of the brown warrior, but there is a second meaning that the name holds as well. Dunn, besides being the word for brown, is also the name of the drowned warrior who became Lord of the House of the Dead. And there are some that say that there was a hidden devotion among our people to Dunn. And I suspect that it was to Dunn that Donald turned his attentions to learn the ways of moving beyond death. Those ways of moving beyond death are hidden in plain sight in the old stories that when speaking of the Tuatha tribe of the gods, among whom we all claim ancestors, speak of the gods and the not gods. The distinction between the gods and the not gods was that the gods were those who had mastered the arts of magic that the heart of the arts of magic is the art of shape-shifting and the art of being able to dance across many lifetimes between forms and remember them all. When Amergen first landed on Ireland's shore and sought to woo she who was the spirit of the land, he spoke of his memory of having been the stag in seven battles, the, the salmon in the pool, 
the hawk above the cliffs. And so speaking, spoke of himself as one who knew those secrets, who knew the ways of dancing between lives and weaving worlds. It was to this art that Donald devoted himself. He kept it all a secret, except from his wife, who he loved dearly. And he could not bear to lie to her when she asked him what he was doing in his chambers. And she asked him if she could come witness what he was performing. And though he felt a sense of dread, his love and trust overcame that sense of dread. And so he allowed her to come in, but he told her, no matter what, she must remain silent, even if she saw terrible things. And she agreed, and they went into the chamber, and he began his work, and she saw him change through many wondrous forms and many terrible forms, and kept her silence until she saw him as their own child dead upon the table. And she cried out in grief. That she cried out in grief, the spell was broken. And as the spell was broken, he was pulled beneath the waters of Loch Lane and into the other world. But the story does not end there. For it said that on the 1st of May every year, he rises up on his horse from beneath the waters with a court dressed in the finest glimmering white attending to him. And if one stands at the shores of Loch Lane at dawn on the 1st of May, one might catch a glimpse of him. And there are stories also of is coming to aid his descendants when they called upon his name. There's stories from the time of the great hunger. One tells of a man who hadn't the money for the rent and the landlord's agent was, de was depending on it, was demanding it. And he went to the shores of the lake and he was weeping, and he called out the name of Donald O'Donoghue. After the third time, he called it out. A figure was standing beside him and told him to fear not and gave him the gold to pay his rent. And he went then to pay his rent, gave the gold to the agent, and the agent signed in the payment. And only after this farmer had left the office did the gold turn to dust. And so this story would have taken place in the generation of my great-grandfather's parents. 
he came of age in the generation after the Great Hunger. And he joined the movement to preserve the language and the culture. And he took the oath to join the Irish Republican Brotherhoods and take up arms a generation before the Easter Rising. And by the time he reached the age of 21, there was a price on his head and he came across the ocean, landing in Lynn, Massachusetts, where he moved to the highest hill in the city. So he could always look out over the ocean to see whether anyone was coming for him. And he kept that watch until the day that he died. So therein is our tale. I was born on his 100th birthday. Oh, Sean, thank you for taking us on a journey beyond journeys through so many portals and liminal spaces and a story of shape-shifting that itself, the story shifted in its shape so many times, but you held it so beautifully. So thank you for taking us with you on that. Oh, thank you for inviting it forth. Wow. Wow. So I'm trying to think of, of where to begin. You know, it's, it's particularly important that we tell this story right around Bialtana. You and I are recording this on Easter Monday and just that interweaving of traditions that um, I think is important to both of us and is important to so many um, of us across, across the world and across time. But as we stand here at this doorway to Bialtana, I'd love for you just to kind of call us through there with you and how you see the associations with this story and this time of year and this time of fertility and transformation and, and beginning again. So the surface of a lake is a mirror. And I live in the mountains of Western Maine on the shores of a lake and the granite that is these mountains reaches across the ocean and is the same as the granite that are is the hills above Loch Lane. And that is, Loch Lane is a place where the salmon dwells and where the eagle flies. And so too is Rangeley Lake. Actually, today is one of the first days that the water on the cove is free of ice. So I may well find myself out at twilight again in my kayak. And very mm -hmm. often when I'm out in my kayak at twilight and the quality of light in the mirror of that lake reveals two forests. There is the forest of this world and the forest of the other world. Mm. And I think of that great carryman, John Moriarty, and his insight that this world and the other world are part of the one great world. Mm. And that the other world is always close at hand. And if we hold Mononon's silver branch, we can see into that other world. And I feel like in some ways, that silver branch is a part of that inheritance from he who dwells beneath the waters. Mm -hmm. And so when we think of that mirroring, well, much we see in when I'm out on the water, I'll see the forest of this world and the forest below, and the forest of the other world, and the forest of the other world 
upholds all that the forest ever has been and all that it might be again. The forest of this world holds what it is in this moment. And so, while much is similar on either side of that veil, on either side of those mists, on either side of the water, one thing that is different is time. And one thing we know from the old stories is that at Beltana in this world, the hawthorn and the blackthorn bloom. But it's at Samhain and the other world that the hawthorn and the blackthorn bloom. And so Biltana and Samhain in many ways are the same gate. It's only from the perspective of the living that whether you're moving into form or moving out of form particularly matters. I felt this for a long time, but I felt it most strongly when I first came to Polnabron in Clare. And standing at that passage that is the portal tomb, I saw that the portal tomb is a portal. Mm. And of course, in this world now, Polnabron rises out of the barren landscape of the barren. But in the time of the people who built it, it would have been in a clearing in a great oak forest. And it was a place where the dead of the tribe were buried together. But standing there, I had a vision that just as people came together at Samhain to speak with the dead, people came together in the same place at Biltana to call those spirits forward to be born into the tribe again. Which, of course, in the absence of time travel technologies other than the magical, we can never verify, but which carried a deep truth to it, that there is but the one gate, and we move back and forth through that gate. And uh, when we understand the nature of that gate, our ancestors, our beloved dead, are never far from us. Oh, wow. There's so many threads to pick up from here, but I first have to offer a very brief personal reflection in that you have just solved a two-year-old mystery for me. Uh-huh. I am deeply grateful. My friend up the street and I went for our first walk in the midst of the pandemic and saw each other for the first time at Bielcina in 2020. We hadn't seen each other in you know however many, six weeks since the world shut down. We went up to a lake near us. I'm in the Hudson Valley and Louisa Pond, which is up on our Chaponique Ridge, not far from us, isn't quite Rangeley Lake, but it has their own magic. Mm-hmm. And we sat beside her and we had spells to cast and prayers to be said and things to release. It was a very Sawany sort of Bialtana in certain mm-hmm. ways when I look back upon it. But as we walked back from the lake toward her house, we saw a yellow white dog chasing a black cat up a tree. Both of these animals appeared from nowhere 
The dog vanished in a moment as soon as the cat went to the tree and the cat just sat 30 feet up and didn't move. And we were just, I, I was with this friend uh, yesterday for Easter for Astara. We were just still marveling about this story and how mm. the two worlds blended. But I just want to thank you for what you just offered all of us here because you just helped me make sense of this story so completely in a way that it feels like just the right time to have started to understand this connection between the two worlds across the wheel of the year, across time frames. And I'd never quite heard that idea of the mirroring of the time of the white thorn blossoming at Samhain in the other world. So I'm deeply grateful for that, that imagery. I'm so glad. And you know, there's a chemical cipher in the blossom of the white thorn that points to this. Mm. So the white thorn has that strange musky scent. And when the white thorn blossom is young, we, to put it delicately, experience it as a scent of fertility. Mm. And when the blossom is young, that scent is coming forward in a molecular suite that includes more uh, the sweet-smelling floral scents that exist within the blossom as well. But as the blossom grows older and those other scents begin to fade, then that same scent that we first experience as a scent of fertility is experienced as a scent of decay hmm. and of death. And what we give that meaning of fertility or death to is actually a single compound which is released by our own bodies with the same meaning. It's in the fluids of our bodies that give life, but it's also released by our bodies when they begin to decay. And so the white thorns scent is a cipher that points towards its nature and the nature of the gate that it stands at. Now, is white thorn the same as hawthorn? Or are those two different? It is. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I need to share one other story because I feel this apparently is what we're needing to do here is trade stories for story. Yeah. And again, through the mystery of time, exactly four years ago today, I took my daughter and I was with my aunt, who's actually from Maine and my cousin. We were in County Roscommon at Awenagat at the cave. And over that cave, which actually, it's, if anyone's looking for more details on it, it's in my book, In the Sovereignty Knot, I tell this story. But I was with my aunt. My mother sort of should have been there, but had passed away uh, 12 years ago. Mm. And I was with her sister. Our guide was about to, he wasn't going to go in. He was in much fan, too fancy of a shoe for to go <laughs> into, into the greatness of a Wenagat. This was not a place to go in anywhere except for the stoutest hiking boots. And even then the mud goes over the edges. But he picks a hawthorn bud and he said, mm. here, it's good for your heart. And of mm. course, he was a Crohan, the last Crohan to live at ah. Rath Crohan. And he passes this to us, gives to my daughter, myself, my aunt, my cousin. And he says, it's good for your heart. And of course, my mother had died of a heart attack eight years before. So it was that moment in which she was completely with us, this moment of the woman who gave birth to me honoring her passage as we go into a cave that is, of course, shaped exactly like stepping into a vagina, into the lobby, into the great V-shaped cleft of this space. And 
this is where I just sort of trail off. And as we can only say, you just can't make this shit up is really where yeah. we go with this. But that's, of course, sometimes the language of the mis- of the mystical at its muskiest and basest space of there are no words other than to say this does keep happening. The worlds do keep reflecting upon each other and asking us to see our reflections on both sides. Yes. Yes. Mm. Well, I want to, returning to this idea of, of mirroring and knowing that you and I both as having lineage in, in Ireland, in Europe, in, that we are feeling very connected to, and yet being children of America and having been here for several generations, what I hear in your story and your deep mystical lang- knowledge of the folklore, your knowledge of plants and the space in which you live now, and I think it sounds very much like the language of the plants across time and space, and of course, the Irish language itself and that desire to call it back in and, and learn it anew. I'm just so struck by the way in which you're a living example of this sense of being in both worlds and finding the wisdom and the strength and the insight on the other side. And of course, not to turn Ireland, which is a very li- living, thriving nation full of, full of people with very real, beautiful, terrible problems, just like here. And there's always the risk of overly romanticizing the old country and turning it into a space of fantasy. And I know from your work and your deep engagement with social justice and the state of the world that you're not looking for escape in, you know, in the old spaces. But I just really want to honor and underline the way in which I see you hold space for both of these and to be in both worlds and to offer that to everyone who gets to learn from you and just really say thank you. And I'd just love to hear a bit more about that experience for you of what it is like to live in both worlds and to speak, as I hear, from both worlds. Thank you so much for that reflection. I'm really honored. So I don't have the quote at the tip of my tongue, so I'll paraphrase that. But Henry David Thoreau, when writing about his own nature, said, I am kin perhaps to our wild apple. I am not of this Aboriginal race, but I am one who has strayed from cultivation. And so if we think about the nature of the apple, the apple was once upon a time arose somewhere on the steps of Central Asia that through attention and relationship with people changed its form and then was carried outward and traveled westward. And so when the apple would have reached our ancestors, it would have been very new to them while being old in the world, but while being kin also to the roads. And then the apple was carried across the ocean and the seeds found root in new soil. And when we speak of heirloom apples, we speak of the cultivation of some of the strains that reach furthest back of that particular species. 
although even they have changed in some ways from generation to generation. But if we think about the wild apples, the feral apples, the crab apples, they over hundreds of years have been carried by birds and bears and foxes from one ridge to another ridge, each place that they, that they take root being changed by the particular sun, the particular wind, the particular rain, the particular soil there, and all of the exhalations of all the other creatures that grew around. And so they can't be said to be native, but neither are they the same as the apples that grow in our cultivated orchards. They've become something else. And so I speak of my approach as being kin to the apple in that way. And the truth is that actually, even if my people had stayed in the same place, even if I had been born on the shores of Loch Lane, the shores of Loch Lane that I would have been born on would not have been the same as the shores of Loch Lane that my great grandfather had been born on which would not have been the same as the ones O'Donohue knew. So across space and time, any living tradition changes. And to claim that it's the same would be to dishonor those who kept things in the ways that they kept them, but to disown that heritage because of the accident of the time and place of birth is equally dishonoring. Well, Sean, that, that is so beautifully and eloquently put. That is something that I think I have been longing to put into words for myself and am still very much in process of doing. And part of what you articulate there and part of what I so admire in your work is something I know that I'm seeking in myself, and that is that sense of wildness. That is that sense of true organic connection. And I know from my own experience, there's no sure way of getting there. There's certainly no way of thinking your way to that place. I don't think it's even possible to read or write your way there as much as I've been trying for the last 42 years, because if that were possible, I would at this point be the wildest creature who ever did take to land and sea. But I would love to hear from you more about this idea of wildness. And I know that's part of your new book that's coming out soon. That's in the title. And you know, I feel like that's such a, well, it's an easy four-letter word to speak that has been put in so many different forms, but I'd love to hear more from you about the shape and meaning and resonance that wild and wildness takes for you. Wild is such a complex word and such a simple word all at once. I think really our only complexities with wildness come from our misunderstanding of it. Mm. And that we have been trained to think of wildness in the terms of those who live within the places that have walled it off and who see it as a threat to an established order. Mm. But the established order that the wild threatens is threatened 
only because of its rigidity. So something rigid seems strong until it's struck in exactly the right way that brings it to shatter. Something fluid, something flowing might not appear as strong to the eyes of our culture, but is able to bend and change. And through that bending and that changing, is able to be part of the dance of all things moving together. And so to be wild is to be part of that ever fluid, that ever shape-shifting order of things, that way in which our world emerges in each moment from the world that existed in the moment before in a way that is completely new. And for me, wildness and sovereignty, which I know is something that you delve deeply into, are inextricably linked. And it's interesting that you and I are both talking about sovereignty in a moment when that word suddenly has a lot of cultural cachet, but the ways in which that word is being used are not the way in which we're using it. So the cultivated, civilized, and civilized, my friend Stephen Buhner taught me, originally means of the cities. So it means contained within the walls that wall off the wild. The civilized concept of sovereignty that is bandied about in our culture right now is the, I have the right to do whatever I want. And that right comes from the fact that I have freedoms. But if we go back to its oldest sense, and we go back to its ancestral sense, to me, sovereignty arises from being wedded to the land and of devotion to the land and the people. And there is a second misunderstanding of, that comes from an understanding that reaches closer but doesn't quite get there because a lot of the last generation of scholars to try to resurrect this equated that with sacrifice. And sacrifice in our modern sense is a bloodied concept. And if we go to the original meaning of the word sacrifice, it means to make sacred. If you already know that everything is sacred, sacrifice in our Christianized sense isn't required. And we can shift that balance. So yes, the king who is wedded to the land gives his life to the land. But that doesn't have to mean giving an early or bloody death. <laughs> that death is only required when that life isn't freely lived and given. And then we can link this as well with our concept of freedom. And I love the resurgence of the word Sirsha as a name. But when we go to what it would have meant under Brahma, 
which of course was a law that was sung rather than written. First one to be seer was to be able to know one's genealogy, to place oneself in a, in a, in a lineage that tied one back to the land and to the sovereignty goddess who, to whom the kings of one's people were wedded. And I think it's an interesting thing, our secular democracy and our secular concept of freedom. And it's not, it was never entirely wrong. When that old understanding of sovereignty and that old understanding of what a king was as not an autocrat, but rather the ritual figure who bound and wove together the will of the people. And of course, that continued in Ireland well into the 17th century. But when that outside understanding of it, that more European, that more English understanding of it became the autocrat, and it became the one who was passing things down from father to son in a way that gave a right that referred back to one god, not to the living spirit of the land. And people rose up to overthrow that. They sought to reclaim what they thought was sovereignty. What they thought was sovereignty was represented in their world by a horrible, the horrible distortion that had become that autocratic kingship. And so if you take down the king and try to claim what it is to be the king, and you misunderstand what a king is, then you will say that that means I can be the autocrat of my own life. Whereas if you understand what sovereignty means, that means, okay, at another time, there was one within the Tua who had that responsibility. We don't live within a Tua now. And so if we want to engage in that way, it falls on each of us to engage in that wedding to the land and that offering of our life to the land in the ways that are right and true in the place and time we are. Oh, so brilliantly said. And I love that you brought us to sovereignty and I guess we'll, we'll start to end our conversation on this point of deep commonality. And also there's such a, I guess it feels like a, a moment of arrival and departure, not leaving mm-hmm. it behind, but it's sense of here we are with beginning anew. And I'm just so grateful for your, the way you articulated that, because for me and having done my own work with sovereignty, you know, having finished the book two and a half years ago and having it emerge right at this moment when the term was shaken up almost as much as society was shaken up and we were all shaken. But that you just did such a brilliant job of helping me realize, because I have really stepped a bit away from sovereignty Mm. and I've leaned into the knot because I realized Mm -hmm. that for me right now is the mystery that I'm called to that that my my energy at this moment wants to describe and explain because that work of redefining sovereignty is good work and we all and sometimes it's exhausting and there's that sense of i realize it was my time to step away from that and instead say let's be in the knot of all the things and discover sovereignty through the loops and the and and the holes we open up 
But what I'm really recognizing to call us back again to this idea of wildness, which is what I really heard you inject back into this idea of sovereignty, as that's what makes the whole concept come alive, to be reborn again, to be something that is of this moment because it is not purely from this moment and that will guide us forward. Yes. That's so interesting, the knot, the braiding, which is the nature of where consciousness arises from. And we are such interesting beings from an evolutionary perspective, these humans who are this individual location of consciousness. And our neural nets are really just a localized variation on the mycelial networks that weave together the mind of the land. But evolution decided to have us look at that from outside to become individualized. And I think we've now come to a point where, as a culture, we've taken individuality as far as it can go. And we need to discover where it arose from again and look with a new wonder from our small self-contained braids of consciousness within our bodies at the braiding of everything. Mm, Yes. Oh, Sean, I feel like we're about to launch into an entirely new web of conversation. So that's why I'll say I do hope you'll come back when we in season two so we can continue this because this is the last interview of season one. And I'm just deeply grateful to have, well, reached a point of arrival and departure with you at mm. the same time to say the knot never does complete. It just begins to swoop anew and begin a new cycle. Indeed. So as we say farewell, could you tell our listeners a bit more about where to find you and your work, the courses you're teaching, the books you've written and that are coming out soon? Absolutely. So my website is otherworldwell.com, drawing its name from that well in the other world where all our rivers have its source. And you can find information about both my books, Courting the Wild Queen and the Forest Reminds Us Who We Are on that page. Forest Reminds Us Who We Are is now out of print, although that will, it will become, come back around eventually through a, through a new publisher. Courting the Wild Queen is, as we record, on the cusp of coming into print. And also, recently into this world, I have brought the other world with the help of some wonderful people, the other world well, Hedge School. The Hedge School being the tradition of where the culture was taught when the culture was outlawed, that in many ways was the continuation of the oral tradition of the old Bardic colleges. And so the Other World Well Hedge School for me is the place in which I bring forward what I've learned from plants and people and living and teach about the weaving together of herbalism and magic and folklore and offer, right now I'm offering weekly live online courses through that hedge school. Oh, Sean, that sounds so delightful. I'm so excited for all the ways in which you are sharing your work 
and your intellect and your magic and all of this otherworldly wisdom, which is so sorely needed and so beautifully needed right now. Mila Buikas, thank you for being with us. Good. And thank you for this invitation and this conversation and for your own beautiful work. Thank you for tuning in to the Not Work Podcast. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, and how to work with me as a writing coach and story healer, as well as my online writing community and courses at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at NotWorkPodcast and join our listeners group over on Facebook. The traditional Irish reel we play at the start of the show is called The College Groves. It's by the wonderful Beth Sweeney and Billy Hardy, a Celtic fiddle and multi-instrumental duo based on Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Find out about their music and shows at BillyandBeth.com. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.